Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh my, it took the third time this time. All right, so good to be in the new year here. This is the first Sunday? Yeah, this is the first Sunday of the new year. Good to see you all here. How are you all doing? Good. Right. So we will continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay. So uh, we will continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, as is clear from the portion today and the reading today, uh, it is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Can you all hear me at the back, Prithvi? All right. You know, as we live in this world, uh, we observe a lot of injustice in our world. There's rampant evil. There's a lot of evil in the world. Chuck Swindoll writes this way. He says, everybody loves a story. We especially like stories that have neat and tidy endings. We don't mind if there is sadness and hardship, but if there is injustice, that's difficult for us to digest. We like for right to win and wrong to lose. We want the people in white hats to come out on top and the ones in black hats to wind up in jail. Let me illustrate this from a few uh, well-known fairy tales. So This is just for the kids to begin with. But I think uh, those of us uh, who are adults can enjoy this as well. Humpty Dumpty. You know, you remember Humpty Dumpty as children? We all studied this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a what? Had a great fall. You know, although all the king's horses and all the king's men feverishly tried to put Humpty Dumpty back on the wall or back together again, we are okay. they couldn't do it, and we are okay with that. We are okay with that because we realize that nobody pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall. If somebody had pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall, that would have been injustice. That would have been mistreatment. Because eggs cannot defend themselves, can they? But the fact of the matter is, the fact that nobody pushed Humpty Dumpty down makes us some, uh, makes us some kind of, you know joyous, or there is some kind of a joy that we take in the fact that there is no injustice there. There's sadness. Yes, all of them could not put him back on the wall, but there's no injustice involved in that. Take the story of Cinderella. We know what the story is. Uh, She was brought up by a stepmother. She treated her terribly, and so did her stepsisters as well. One day she went to a ball, and all of a sudden she lost a glass slipper, and she was on the way back. It was past time that was given by the fairy godmother and all of a sudden her carriage turned into a pumpkin. We are okay with that because she was told already what the possibility would be if she had crossed that timeline or the deadline that was given to her. But also there is one more thing that we need to understand in the story and that is that Cinderella at the end of it got the glass slipper. Why? Because somehow we realize that she deserved the glass slipper. We would have never forgiven the author if one of the stepsisters had got the glass slipper. The story, again, may have a sad ending, but the fact of the matter is it's not unjust. There is justice that has been meted out. Now, as adults, of course, we know that these are only fairy tales, and Chuck Swindoll writes at the end of it, Sad endings we can handle, but unjust ones we cannot. Suffering makes us sad, 
but injustice makes us mad. Did you hear that? Suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad. I think we can all agree with that. Suffering we can take somehow. It does make us sad, but injustice we cannot tolerate. It makes us mad. As we sit here this morning, let me ask you this question as we begin this passage. What injustices trouble you the most? What injustices trouble you the most? Now, injustice can come in many forms. Not getting credit is an injustice. For example, it doesn't seem right to work hard, particularly in our careers, and somebody else who's not supposed to be getting and going high up the uh, ladder before us has gone before us, and we are left out. That's not fair. Some of us are victims of being left behind because of politics at workplace. That's not fair. What about birth defects or some kind of life-changing accidents? For example, of the many friends that I have, I can think of two friends. One friend has a special needs child, and the other friend has three good children. They're all perfectly healthy. That's not fair. And sometimes injustice is as simple as others cutting in line. And maybe your family background is unjust. So as we sit here this morning, let's think about this question. How does injustice make you feel as you sit here and think about it? How does injustice make you feel? Does it make you feel angry? Does it make you feel vengeful? Or does it make you feel withdrawn? We have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes over the last uh, several months. And the last time I spoke on Ecclesiastes, which I think is, was in the month of November, we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, that God rules over time and rules over everything that happens in time. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over every aspect of what happens in our lives because it happens in time. And Solomon also went on to say that uh, we must enjoy life as a gift given by God. We must enjoy life as a gift given by God. Now Solomon here comes to one of his greatest struggles as he has mentioned that we must enjoy life as a gift given by God. Yes, we can enjoy life as a gift given by God, but the fact of the matter is there is a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of evil in the world. Now given the fact of rampant evil in the world, given that there's so much of injustice in the world, how can I enjoy life? How can I enjoy life as a gift from God? That is the question that Solomon is tackling with here. So today's passage will deal uh, with injustice in the world and death in the world as well, the problem of death. It gives us three things we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. Today's passage will give us three things that we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. Once again, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Now, this passage is a very enigmatic passage. Solomon is not going bang, bang, bang like the Apostle Paul. This is not a Pauline epistle where you have three points or four points, and Paul is direct and logical, and, and it's, he's very clear about it. This is a kind of an enigmatic passage. This is, this, it's poetry, and he's using poetic language and all of that. But I'll try to make it as simple as possible. This is a short sermon as well. Uh, try to uh, catch up, please, as we go through the sermon, and we have the outline up here as well. And so in verses 16 and 17, you will see that the first thing that we need to understand is that although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. 
although the world is full of injustice god has appointed a time for all people to be accountable yes there is evil everywhere yes there is rampant evil everywhere and it is also without restraint but the fact of the matter is god has appointed a time for justice to prevail and in solomon trying to explain this he says two things for our understanding firstly solomon says the problem of injustice is pervasive in this world the problem of injustice or evil is pervasive in this world look at verse 16 moreover i saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness Solomon here as he begins this particular passage is once again using the phrase under the sun. He says under the sun in the place of justice there is injustice and again under the sun in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. What is this phrase under the sun as we have described earlier in our earlier studies it describes the futility and meaninglessness meaninglessness of life lived for self and the moment without gratitude to and regard for god and his ways which means when you're locking god out of the system you're taking god and his revelation away from the system what you're left with on this earth is just godlessness or is just human ways of life so solomon is talking about life under the sun here and he says under the sun there's a lot of injustice there is rampant injustice there's a lot of evil in the world here the preacher solomon sounds like one of the old testament prophets who was crying out for justice a lot of old testament prophets cried out for justice as they talked about a lot of injustices and evil in the world this is one of the deepest longing, longings of the human heart and we want to see an end to all unfairness in the world the particular problem here that solomon is mentioning is that even in the place of justice there is injustice even in the place of righteousness there is unrighteousness and wickedness the very place where people need to get justice from has become the locus of injustice the very place where people need to get righteousness from has become the locus of unfairness innocent people are convicted for crimes they never committed they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or perhaps they were in they had the wrong color in the wrong part of town people lie people cheat and people steal and sometimes they even get away with murder if they have the money to hire better lawyers they do it and they get away or they hide behind the structure of some large institution to take advantage of people who are unfortunate or who don't have much of a fortune Incidentally just yesterday as I was preparing this message about injustice I looked at the Indian Express online and the Indian Express carried an article by uh, Javed Anand and it's called Codes of Injustice the title was Codes of Injustice it's a long article but he makes a statement that captures well what Solomon is saying here he says it was in the paper yesterday he says justice from India's codes of law is a long drawn and costly process making justice beyond the reach of india's poor justice in india's courts is a long drawn and a costly process and it makes justice out of the reach of india's poor it's also unfair as what we think even worse there's nothing that can be done about it there's nothing done uh, nothing that can be done by you or by me about it 
So Solomon's frustration here is that injustice goes unpunished. And when the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, the question is, where can righteousness be found? Where can righteousness be found? So when the preacher, that is Solomon, saw what was happening here, he longed for someone to bring justice. He longed for someone to bring justice and dry the tears of people. So caught somewhere between grief and anger, we feel the same kind of frustration as well. Let me share with you the story of Lena. Obviously, the name has changed because this is from a Muslim background. Lena is a 19-year-old Egyptian girl who was raised in a devout Muslim family. Lena had been taught to despise Christianity, and she'd been taught that Jesus was just a prophet and nothing more. But one day, a friend from school invited her to come and listen to a radio program. It was a Christian radio program, and the gospel was clearly preached through uh, through the radio program. The more she listened, the more Elena began to understand that Jesus is more than a prophet, and a Bible was given to her. She began to read and pour over the scripture, and she came to understand and be convinced of the fact that Jesus is the true and the living God. But sadly, persecutions began right from her family members. She is 19 years old, and even then, her father mercilessly beat her up. Her mother would not let her sit with the rest of the family at meals. And eventually, they declared her dead to the family. They ostracized her. They put her out of the house. And that, uh, that didn't stop right there. They also had her kidnapped without her knowledge and also got her beaten until she was broken and unconscious. That's what we see under the sun. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of injustice. So how should we respond? How does all this suffering fit in with our theology? If God is good, then why do many bad things happen? If God is good, then why do many bad things happen? Solomon has a good answer to the problem of injustice, which is our next point for this morning. Secondly, Solomon says, God has appointed a time to judge everyone. God has appointed a time to judge everyone. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon is a fantastic preacher. Now, the good thing with fantastic preachers or good preachers is that they practice what they preach. Solomon here, the last time I spoke, he talked about there being a time for everything. And Solomon is applying that principle to his own life, and also he's applying that principle to the problem of injustice. He takes this scriptural principle that he had taught earlier, that there's a season for everything under heaven, a time for every matter under heaven, and he says, if there's a time for every matter under heaven, if there's a season for everything under heaven, there must be a time for injustice, and there must be a time for justice as well. Isn't that right? There must be a time for injustice, and there must be a time for justice as well. So Solomon's point is, rather than simply getting angry and sad about all the oppression we see in the world, we can trust God to make things right in the end. We can trust God to make things right in the end. This does not mean that there's never a time for us to pursue justice, but even our best efforts will not bring a complete end to oppression. Even our best efforts will not put a complete stop to persecution. 
There will still be violence against women and children, structures of corruption in business and government, and even law enforcement. But in all the situations that we do not have the power, the authority, and the wisdom to resolve, God will see to it that justice will be done. God will see to it that justice is done. I was thinking of uh, Morris West, an Australian novelist who wrote a book called, or novel called, Eminence. In that, he tells the story of an Argentinian priest called Luca Rossini. He's a Catholic priest, a Roman Catholic priest. Luca Rossini is now a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, and he's been promoted. He's been moved to Vatican. He becomes a confidant of the Pope. It's, it, this is just a novel, not a real story. But in the 1970s, when um, the military had taken over Argentina, this man, uh, Luca Rossini, was a young man. He was a priest. He was dragged into the village in front of all the villagers. He was beaten. And he was beaten and brutally beaten and brutally treated as well. So he had bad scars on his back that he really carried for the rest of his life, which were an outward appearance of the real pain that he had carried on the inside in his heart. And now... He's in his 50s. Uh, Morris West picks up the story. He's in his 50s. He's a close confidant in Vatican City of the Pope himself. In one of the scenes in that beautiful novel, he is having a conversation with the Pope. And the Pope says to him, I think when I stand before God, I will have to I will have to have a very difficult time because of what all I committed in my life. It's going to be inevitable that I'll have a difficult time. And Luca Rossini, he looks at the Pope and he says this, Holiness, we pray every day that our trespasses will be forgiven. We have to believe that our end will be a homecoming and not a session with torturers. We have to believe that our end will be a homecoming and not a session with torturers. The Pope looks at Luca in that novel and he says, Luca, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? And Luca says, if I did not believe in this holiness, then I couldn't think of living in this dastardly world at all. If I did not believe in that, that one day God will bring things to justice, I cannot even expect to live in such a dastardly world. Our confidence does not lie in a justice system. Our confidence lies in the chief justice himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He talks to the men of Athens and he makes the statements. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. The appointed time for divine retribution is the day of judgment when the Son of God will render his final verdict on humanity. Jesus Christ will bring final justice and therefore we live in the certain hope of that great expectation that we have that one day he will come and make things right. So whenever we see injustice here in the world right now that we are powerless to prevent, we pray for justice and we leave the matter in God's hands. This takes faith in God's promises and patience to wait for his timing. Now seeing the legal system, seeing the legal system uh, that is unfair can bring frustration to all of us. So we must personalize this by seeing our own accountability before God. What do I mean by that? When I see that the legal system is unfair, when I see that there's a lot of injustice in the world, can we pause long enough to think about the evil in our own heart and realize only when it's multiplied manifold, 
will you see such ramifications out there in the world. So I must first deal with the evil in my own heart because I know that one day I will be accountable to God. One day I will be stand before the judgment seat of God because both the wicked and the righteous God will judge. Both the wicked and the righteous, God will judge. Now, Solomon is not making a doctrine on eschatology and differentiated between the beam of Christ or the great white throne of Christ. Again, this is poetic language. So we know that as believers, we stand before the great white throne of Christ. I'm sorry, uh, the beam of Christ and unbelievers stand before the great white throne of Christ. But the point is, God has appointed a time to judge everyone. So in verses 16 and 17, We saw that although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. Now, even if we believe this, that justice is coming, we may still wonder why it is delayed. Why is justice delayed? To be sure, God will make things and everything right in the end, but why doesn't he judge people right away? Why does he have to wait till the end to judge uh, somebody on the judgment day? And that brings us to a second point that we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. And that is in verses 18 through 21. They say that God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. Our present existence is a proving ground. God has put us in this world of injustice to test our character. And if we don't believe in God, we are no better than animals. In explaining this, Solomon says two important things, and let's go one by one. First thing, Solomon says, without God, man is like animals in this physical world. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. One of life's purposes is to examine and ultimately to reveal our true relationship to God. This test is not so much a test for God as much as it is a test for us so that we recognize our mortality. We will learn to see for ourselves as to who we really are. In this world of injustice, we will learn to see who we really are by the way we live here. This is the searching question that waiting for justice poses for every one of us. Now let me explain this a little bit. I have a tough quote here, but I'll explain that and now listen to this very carefully. Viktor Frankl was a man who was a Holocaust survivor. And he wrote a book called The Doctor and the Soul. He had been through uh, several concentration camps and he had come out of them by God's grace. And he wrote a book about evil and injustice and all of that. And here he talks about this, about how corruption about what man really is has bad ramifications for the world. Look at this. He says, if you present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an automaton of reflexes, a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, heredity and environment, we feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. Listen to what he's saying here. He's saying if you present man with a wrong concept about himself, that he's a mere automaton, a bundle of drives and nothing else, you will 
you will feed the nihilism or you will feed an atheistic worldview to which the modern man is in any case prone and then he goes on to say i became acquainted with the last stage of that corruption in my second concentration camp auschwitz the gas chambers of auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and an environment or as the nazis like to say of blood and soil and then he says he makes this poignant comment and here is what i'm uh, what i'm trying to drive at i'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of auschwitz treblinka and majdanek these were the three places where there were gas chambers were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in berlin but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers look at what he's saying he's saying that these gas chambers that exterminated 6 million jews they were not prepared in some berlin or in some ministry of defense but they were prepared right in at the desks and the lecture halls of atheistic philosophers there's a worldview behind it there's a worldview that does not see a difference between humans and animals there's a worldview that can exterminate a human just like an animal and 6 million of them because you don't see a difference between a human being and an animal without god there is thank you without god without god there is no difference between an animal and a human being without god there is no value for life world becomes unlivable there is no distinction so the one who denies god or one who tries to live apart from him or in the words of solomon for the one who lives under the sun there is no hope there is no way even to distinguish his existence from the existence of a beast and that's why solomon says without god man is like animals man is like animals in the physical world but what about believers ernst hengstenberg in his commentary on the book of ecclesiastes he talks he says a beautiful thing about why god has put believers although there is so much of injustice in the world look at this he says by thoroughly disgusting us with the world and making us realize its absolute vanity god means to draw us to himself only in this way can yahweh the true and absolute being become to us what he really is through much tribulation must our hold on earthly things be loosened and ourselves enter into the kingdom of god did you hear that through much tribulation when we are disgusted with the world through much tribulation our hold on earthly things will be loosened and we enter into the kingdom of god without god man is like animals in the physical world secondly solomon says man and animals are alike in the fact of their dying man and animals are alike in the fact of their dying not sure this is working can you click on that please ah got it thank you all right look at verses 19 through 21 for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same as one dies so dies the other they all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity all go to one place all are from the dust and to dust all return who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes downward to the earth now this is one of the bible's strongest statements about the inevitability of death which is the greatest of all equalizers 
animals are living creatures. Like us, they've been given both breath and life, but this life will last, not last forever. The day will come when each of us will breathe our last. With our parting breath, each of us will return to the same place, and that is to the dust, is what Solomon says here. But Solomon uses a phrase here. He says, the fate of sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. What does he mean? He means that both of us, are, both of us die and both of our bodies go back to the dust. That's where the similarity sees. Now the verse also says that man has no advantage over the beast. In this context, what Solomon means is that man has no advantage over the beast in death, which means that there is the inevitability of death for both man and beast. Man and beast both die alike. How shall we respond to this dreadful certainty of our morality, mortality? How shall we respond to this dreadful certainty of our mortality? There's one order of monks called Trappist monks. You know what they do? There is one particular order, and there are several of them. They, they go and dig a grave, and every single day, the whole order, the whole set, goes to the grave. They peer over the grave, and they ponder their mortality, and they come back. When one of them dies, they bury him, they put dirt over it, they go to the next place, dig a grave, and the ritual repeats all over again. Now, not all of us can respond to death in such a practical way. Some people try to laugh it off. Just like Woody Allen, who once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But the fact of the matter is, many people are afraid of death. They have terrors in the night and despair of finding any lasting hope or authentic meaning in life. Solomon, I think, is at, is at that desperate moment in his life here, and that's why he comes to say that all is vanity. All is meaningless. All is meaningless. Why? Because if there is no God, everybody is going to go and die. And that's the end of it all. There is no meaning. Everything is meaningless. But still, the preacher somehow stretches his imagination a little further. He says he knows of one thing that could make a difference in the face of death. And that is, even if our body is written to the dust of the ground, if we have a soul that could live on, then somehow there is a time for justice after death. And then God can make things right. God can put things to rights because there is an afterlife. There is a life after death where oppressors can be brought to justice. And that's why I look at verse 21. In verse 21, Solomon says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here Solomon is merely repeating the sentiment of people who usually say, who can know what happens after life? He's not making a doctrine saying that there is no afterlife, but he's just repeating the sentiment of people around saying, who knows what can happen after life? Now, this is the most basic question we can ask about our destiny. Is our life going to end with death or are we going to live on? And the best answer has been given by God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? You know why. Because Jesus is the one who's gone to the other side and has come back alive to live on forever. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Bodily rose again from the dead. Now to everyone who believes in him, we will all rise to a better life. 
This is why we can be absolutely sure and absolutely certain of eternal life. It is because Jesus brought eternal life out of a deadly grave. And Paul puts it so beautifully. He says, Jesus abolished death and brought to life an immortality, uh, and uh, brought to life an immortality, light uh, through the gospel. I read once of a little girl who, uh, whose house was just beside a cemetery, and to go and buy anything in the market, she had to walk through the cemetery. But she never had any fear, but she was pretty used to the cemetery, and uh, she would even return late in the night from the market, a small little girl. Now, all of a sudden, one passerby stopped her once and asked her, uh, are you not afraid you have to go through the cemetery in the night? She said, no, because my home is just beyond. Are you afraid of the cemetery this morning? No, not if you're a Christian, because you and I know our home is just beyond. So, so far, we have seen two things from Solomon about how to live in this unjust world. He said that we need to understand two things. First thing, although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. And then the second thing he said, it was that God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. He would recognize he is no better than animals. Then there's a third and final thing we need to understand, and that is in verse 22. It says that man should enjoy his appointed works as there's no future beyond them apart from God. Man should enjoy his appointed works as, no, as there's no future beyond them apart from God. Now, you see the argument where Solomon is going? Firstly, Solomon talked about a lot of injustice in the world. Follow me, please. Solomon talked about a lot of injustice in the world. And he says, yes, there's injustice, but the fact of the matter is there's one day where God will put everything to rights. And in the meantime, as we live, if you don't have hope of that day of judgment, you will be no better than animals. Because everybody is going to die and there's no afterlife. But if you do have an afterlife, we have hope. And then Solomon uh, asked the question, now in the meanwhile, what do we do? I think there's going to break today. I'll have to buy a new one. It's gone. Okay. Uh, in, in the meanwhile, Solomon says, what do we do? We live and enjoy life. Isn't that what he says? God has appointed certain works for man, and he must enjoy those appointed works. He must enjoy those appointed works. But the fact of the matter is, Solomon also says this, you will not find meaning in those appointed works without a worldview that has God in the equation. We'll look at that. He's saying that you can rejoice in whatever good work God gives you to do as you wait for the day of judgment. Again, in explaining this, he has two things to say. Let's go one by one. Steve, if you can help me. Uh, first thing, Solomon says, man should be happy in his appointed activities. Look at the first part of verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. As Solomon wrestled about his doubts about afterlife, his first impulse was to throw himself back to work. Now, here's a very simple principle that I want to give. If you're uncertain about your future, the best thing to do right now is to be productive. Oh, this works? Okay. The best thing to do right now is to be productive. 
But unless we have eternal life, finding joy in our everyday work will never give us some kind of a joy that we take in the fact that there is no injustice there. There's sadness. Yes, all of them could not put him back on the wall, but there's no injustice involved in that. Take the story of Cinderella. We know what the story is. Uh, She was brought up by a stepmother. She treated her terribly, and so did her stepsisters as well. One day she went to a ball, and all of a sudden she lost a glass slipper, and she was on the way back. It was past time that was given by the fairy godmother, and all of a sudden her carriage turned into a pumpkin. We are okay with that because she was told already what the possibility would be if she had crossed that timeline or the deadline that was given to her. But also, there is one more thing that we need to understand in the story. And that is that Cinderella, at the end of it, got the glass slipper. Why? Because somehow we realize that she deserved the glass slipper. We would have never forgiven the author if one of the stepsisters had got the glass slipper. The story, again, may have a sad ending. But the fact of the matter is, it's not unjust. There is justice that has been meted out. Now, as adults, of course, we know that these are only fairy tales. And Chuck Swindoll writes at the end of it, sad endings we can handle, but unjust ones we cannot. Suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad. Did you hear that? Suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad. I think we can all agree with that. Suffering we can take somehow. It does make us sad, but injustice we cannot tolerate. It makes us mad. As we sit here this morning, let me ask you this question as we begin this passage. What injustices trouble you the most? What injustices trouble you the most? Now, injustice can come in many forms. Not getting credit is an injustice. For example, it doesn't seem right to work hard, particularly in our careers, and somebody else who's not supposed to be getting and going high up the uh, ladder before us has gone before us and we are left out. That's not fair. Some of us are victims of being left behind because of politics at workplace. That's not fair. What about birth defects or some kind of life-changing accidents? For example, of the many friends that I have, I can think of two friends. One friend has a special needs child. And the other friend has three good children. They're all perfectly healthy. That's not fair. And sometimes injustice is as simple as others cutting in line. And maybe your family background is unjust. So as we sit here this morning, let's think about this question. How does injustice make you feel as you sit here and think about it? How does injustice make you feel? Does it make you feel angry? Does it make you feel vengeful? Or does it make you feel withdrawn? We have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes over the last uh, several months. And the last time I spoke on Ecclesiastes, which I think is, was in the month of November, we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, that God rules over time and rules over everything that happens in time. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over every aspect of what happens in our lives because it happens in time. And Solomon also went on to say that uh, we must enjoy life as a gift given by God. We must enjoy life as a gift given by God. 
Now Solomon here comes to one of his greatest struggles as he has mentioned that we must enjoy life as a gift given by God. Yes, we can enjoy life as a gift given by God, but the fact of the matter is there is a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of evil in the world. Now, given the fact of rampant evil in the world, given that there's so much of injustice in the world, how can I enjoy life? How can I enjoy life as a gift from God? That is the question that Solomon is tackling with here. So today's passage will deal uh, with injustice in the world and death in the world as well, the problem of death. It gives us three things we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. Today's passage will give us three things that we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. Once again, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Now, this passage is a very enigmatic passage. Solomon is not going bang, bang, bang like the Apostle Paul. This is not a Pauline epistle where you have three points or four points, and Paul is direct and logical, and, and it's, he's very clear about it. This is a kind of an enigmatic passage. This is, this, it's poetry, and he's using poetic language and all of that. But I'll try to make it as simple as possible. This is a short sermon as well. Uh, try to uh, catch up, please, as we go through the sermon, and we have the outline up here as well. And so in verses 16 and 17, you will see that the first thing that we need to understand is that although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. Although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. Yes, there is evil everywhere. Yes, there is rampant evil everywhere, and it is also without restraint. But the fact of the matter is, God has appointed a time for justice to prevail. And in Solomon, trying to explain this, he says two things for our understanding. Firstly, Solomon says, the problem of injustice is pervasive in this world. The problem of injustice or evil is pervasive in this world. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon here, as he begins this particular passage, is once again using the phrase, under the sun. He says, under the sun, in the place of justice, there is injustice. And again, under the sun, in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. What is this phrase, under the sun? As we have described earlier in our earlier studies, it describes the futility and meaninglessness, meaninglessness of life lived for self and the moment without gratitude to and regard for God and his ways. Which means when you're locking God out of the system, you're taking God and his revelation away from the system. What you're left with on this earth is just godlessness or is just human ways of life. So Solomon is talking about life under the sun here. And he says, under the sun, there's a lot of injustice. There is rampant injustice. There's a lot of evil in the world. Here, the preacher, Solomon, sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets who was crying out for justice. A lot of Old Testament prophets cried out for justice as they talked about a lot of injustices and evil in the world. This is one of the deepest longing, longings of the human heart. And we want to see an end to all unfairness in the world. The particular problem here that Solomon is mentioning is that even in the place of justice, there is injustice. 
even in the place of righteousness, there is unrighteousness and wickedness. The very place where people need to get justice from has become the locus of injustice. The very place where people need to get righteousness from has become the locus of unfairness. Innocent people are convicted for crimes they never committed. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or perhaps they, were in, they had the wrong color in the wrong part of town. People lie, people cheat, and people steal. And sometimes they even get away with murder. If they have the money to hire better lawyers, they do it and they get away. Or they hide behind the structure of some large institution to take advantage of people who are unfortunate or who don't have much of a fortune. Incidentally, just yesterday as I was preparing this message about injustice, I looked at the Indian Express online. And the Indian Express carried an article by uh, Javed Anand, and it's called Codes of Injustice. The title was Codes of Injustice. It's a long article, but he makes a statement that captures well what Solomon is saying here. He says, it was in the paper yesterday, he says, justice from India's codes of law is a long, drawn, and costly process, making justice beyond the reach of India's poor. Justice in India's codes is a long-drawn and a costly process, and it makes justice out of the reach of India's poor. It's also unfair as what we think. Even worse, there's nothing that can be done about it. There's nothing, done, uh, nothing that can be done by you or by me about it. So Solomon's frustration here is that injustice goes unpunished. And when the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, the question is, where can righteousness be found? Where can righteousness be found? So when the preacher, that is Solomon, saw what was happening here, he longed for someone to bring justice. He longed for someone to bring justice and dry the tears of people. So caught somewhere between grief and anger, we feel the same kind of frustration as well. Let me share with you the story of Lena. Obviously, the name has changed because this is from a Muslim background. Lena is a 19-year-old Egyptian girl who was raised in a devout Muslim family. Lena had been taught to despise Christianity, and she'd been taught that Jesus was just a prophet and nothing more. But one day, a friend from school invited her to come and listen to a radio program. It was a Christian radio program, and the gospel was clearly preached through uh, through the radio program. The more she listened, the more... Lena began to understand that Jesus is more than a prophet, and a Bible was given to her. She began to read and pour over the scripture, and she came to understand and be convinced of the fact that Jesus is the true and the living God. But sadly, persecutions began right from her family members. She is 19 years old, and even then, her father mercilessly beat her up. Her mother would not let her sit with the rest of the family at meals. And eventually, they declared her dead to the family. They ostracized her. They put her out of the house. And that, uh, that didn't stop right there. They also had her kidnapped without her knowledge and also got her beaten until she was broken and unconscious. That's what we see under the sun. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of injustice. So how should we respond? How does all this suffering fit in with our theology? If God is good, then why do many bad things happen? If God is good, then why do many bad things happen? Solomon has a good answer to the problem of injustice, which is our next point for this morning. Secondly, Solomon says, God has appointed a time to judge everyone. 
God has appointed a time to judge everyone. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon is a fantastic preacher. Now, the good thing with fantastic preachers or good preachers is that they practice what they preach. Solomon here, the last time I spoke, he talked about there being a time for everything. And Solomon is applying that principle to his own life, and also he's applying that principle to the problem of injustice. He takes this scriptural principle that he had taught earlier, that there's a season for everything under heaven, a time for every matter under heaven, and he says, if there's a time for every matter under heaven, if there's a season for everything under heaven, there must be a time for injustice, and there must be a time for justice as well. Isn't that right? There must be a time for injustice, and there must be a time for justice as well. So Solomon's point is, rather than simply getting angry and sad about all the oppression we see in the world, we can trust God to make things right in the end. We can trust God to make things right in the end. This does not mean that there's never a time for us to pursue justice, but even our best efforts will not bring a complete end to oppression. Even our best efforts will not put a complete stop to persecution. There will still be violence against women and children, structures of corruption in business and government, and even law enforcement. But in all the situations that we do not have the power, the authority, and the wisdom to resolve, God will see to it that justice will be done. God will see to it that justice is done. I was thinking of uh, Morris West, an Australian novelist who wrote a book called, or novel called, Eminence. In that, he tells the story of an Argentinian priest called Luca Rossini. He's a Catholic priest, a Roman Catholic priest. Luca Rossini is now a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, and he's been promoted. He's been moved to Vatican. He becomes a confidant of the Pope. This is just a novel, not a real story. But in the 1970s, when um, the military had taken over Argentina, This man, uh, Luca Rossini, was a young man. He was a priest. He was dragged into the village in front of all the villagers. He was beaten. And he was beaten and brutally beaten and brutally treated as well. So he had bad scars on his back that he really carried for the rest of his life, which were an outward appearance of the real pain that he had carried on the inside in his heart. And now... He's in his 50s. Uh, Morris West picks up the story. He's in his 50s. He's a close confidant in Vatican City of the Pope himself. In one of the scenes in that beautiful novel, he is having a conversation with the Pope. And the Pope says to him, I think when I stand before God, I will have to I will have to have a very difficult time because of what all I committed in my life. It's going to be inevitable that I'll have a difficult time. And Luca Rossini, he looks at the Pope and he says this, Holiness, we pray every day that our trespasses will be forgiven. We have to believe that our end will be a homecoming and not a session with torturers. We have to believe that our end will be a homecoming and not a session with torturers. The Pope looks at Luca in that novel and he says, Luca, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? And Luca says, if I did not believe in this holiness, then I couldn't think of living in this dastardly world at all. 
If I did not believe in that, that one day God will bring things to justice, I cannot even expect to live in such a dastardly world. Our confidence does not lie in a justice system. Our confidence lies in the chief justice himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he talks to the men of Athens and he makes the statement. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. The appointed time for divine retribution is the day of judgment when the Son of God will render his final verdict on humanity. Jesus Christ will bring final justice and therefore we live in the certain hope of that great expectation that we have that one day he will come and make things right. So whenever we see injustice here in the world right now that we are powerless to prevent, we pray for justice and we leave the matter in God's hands. This takes faith in God's promises and patience to wait for his timing. Now seeing the legal system, seeing the legal system uh, that is unfair can bring frustration to all of us. So we must personalize this by seeing our own accountability before God. What do I mean by that? When I see that the legal system is unfair... When I see that there's a lot of injustice in the world, can we pause long enough to think about the evil in our own heart and realize only when it's multiplied manifold will you see such ramifications out there in the world. So I must first deal with the evil in my own heart because I know that one day I will be accountable to God. One day I will be stand before the judgment seat of God because both the wicked and the righteous God will judge. Both the wicked and the righteous, God will judge. Now, Solomon is not making a doctrine on eschatology and differentiate it between the beam of Christ or the great white throne of Christ. Again, this is poetic language. So we know that as believers, we stand before the great white throne of Christ. I'm sorry, uh, the beam of Christ and unbelievers stand before the great white throne of Christ. But the point is, God has appointed a time to judge everyone. So in verses 16 and 17, We saw that although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. Now, even if we believe this, that justice is coming, we may still wonder why it is delayed. Why is justice delayed? To be sure, God will make things and everything right in the end, but why doesn't he judge people right away? Why does he have to wait till the end to judge uh, somebody on the judgment day? And that brings us to a second point that we need to understand about how to live in this unjust world. And that is in verses 18 through 21. They say that God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. Our present existence is a proving ground. God has put us in this world of injustice to test our character. And if we don't believe in God, we are no better than animals. In explaining this, Solomon says two important things, and let's go one by one. First thing, Solomon says, without God, man is like animals in this physical world. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. One of life's purposes is to examine and ultimately to reveal our true relationship to God. 
This test is not so much a test for God as much as it is a test for us so that we recognize our mortality. We will learn to see for ourselves as to who we really are. In this world of injustice, we will learn to see who we really are by the way we live here. This is the searching question that waiting for justice poses for every one of us. Now, let me explain this a little bit. I have a tough quote here, but I'll explain that, and now listen to this very carefully. Viktor Frankl was a man who was a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote a book called The Doctor and the Soul. He had been through uh, several concentration camps, and he had come out of them by God's grace, and he wrote a book about evil and injustice and all of that, And here he talks about this, about how corruption about what man really is has bad ramifications for the world. Look at this. He says, if you present man with a concept of man which is not true, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an automaton of reflexes, a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct, heredity, and environment, we feed the nihilism to which modern man is in any case prone. Listen to what he's saying here. He's saying if you present man with a wrong concept about himself, that he's a mere automaton, a bundle of drives and nothing else, you will, you will feed the nihilism or you will feed an atheistic worldview to which the modern man is in any case prone. And then he goes on to say, I became acquainted with the last stage of that corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and an environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. And then he says, he makes this poignant comment, and here is what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to drive at. I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek, these were the three places where there were gas chambers, were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Look at what he's saying. He's saying that these gas chambers that exterminated six million Jews, they were not prepared in some Berlin or in some ministry of defense, but they were prepared right in, at the desks and the lecture halls of atheistic philosophers. There's a worldview behind it. There's a worldview that does not see a difference between humans and animals. There's a worldview that can exterminate a human just like an animal and six million of them because you don't see a difference between a human being and an animal. Without God, there is... Thank you. Without God, without God, there is no difference between an animal and a human being. Without God, there is no value for life. World becomes unlivable. There is no distinction. So the one who denies God or one who tries to live apart from him, or in the words of Solomon, for the one who lives under the sun, there is no hope. There is no way even to distinguish his existence from the existence of a beast. And that's why Solomon says, without God, man is like animals. Man is like animals in the physical world. But what about believers? Ernst Hengstenberg, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks, he says a beautiful thing about why God has put believers, although there is so much of injustice in the world. Look at this. He says, by thoroughly disgusting us with the world, 
and making us realize its absolute vanity. God means to draw us to himself. Only in this way can Yahweh, the true and absolute being, become to us what he really is. Through much tribulation must our hold on earthly things be loosened and ourselves enter into the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? Through much tribulation, when we are disgusted with the world, through much tribulation, our hold on earthly things will be loosened and we enter into the kingdom of God. Without God, man is like animals in the physical world. Secondly, Solomon says, man and animals are alike in the fact of their dying. Man and animals are alike in the fact of their dying. Not sure this is working. Can you click on that, please? Ah, Got it. Thank you. All right. Look at verses 19 through 21. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of beast goes downward to the earth. Now, this is one of the Bible's strongest statements about the inevitability of death, which is the greatest of all equalizers. Animals are living creatures. Like us, they've been given both breath and life, but this life will not last forever. The day will come when each of us will breathe our last. With our parting breath, each of us will return to the same place, and that is to the dust, is what Solomon says here. But Solomon uses a phrase here. He says, the fate of sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. What does he mean? He means that both both of us die, And both of our bodies go back to the dust. That's where the similarity cease. Now the verse also says that man has no advantage over the beast. In this context, what Solomon means is that man has no advantage over the beast in death, which means that there is the inevitability of death for both man and beast. Man and beast both die alike. How shall we respond to this dreadful certainty of our mortality? How shall we respond to this dreadful certainty of our mortality? There's one order of monks called Trappist monks. You know what they do? There is one particular order, and there are several of them. They, they go and dig a grave, and every single day, the whole order, the whole set, goes to the grave. They peer over the grave, and they ponder their mortality, and they come back. When one of them dies, they bury him, they put dirt over it, they go to the next place, dig a grave, and the ritual repeats all over again. Now, not all of us can respond to death in such a practical way. Some people try to laugh it off, just like Woody Allen, who once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But the fact of the matter is, many people are afraid of death. They have terrors in the night and despair of finding any lasting hope or authentic meaning in life. Solomon, I think, is at, is at that desperate moment in his life here, and that's why he comes to say that all is vanity. All is meaningless. All is meaningless. Why? Because if there is no God, everybody is going to go and die, and that's the end of it all. There is no meaning. Everything is meaningless. But still, the preacher somehow stretches his imagination a little further. He says he knows of one thing that could make a difference in the face of death. 
And that is, even if our body is written to the dust of the ground, if we have a soul that could live on, then somehow there is a time for justice after death. And then God can make things right. God can put things to rights because there is an afterlife. There is a life after death where oppressors can be brought to justice. And that's why look at verse 21. In verse 21, Solomon says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here Solomon is merely repeating the sentiment of people who usually say, who can know what happens after life? He's not making a doctrine saying that there is no afterlife, but he is just repeating the sentiment of people around saying, who knows what can happen after life? Now, this is the most basic question we can ask about our destiny. Is our life going to end with death or are we going to live on? And the best answer has been given by God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? You know why. Because Jesus is the one who's gone to the other side and has come back alive to live on forever. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Bodily rose again from the dead. Now to everyone who believes in him, we will all rise to a better life. This is why we can be absolutely sure and absolutely certain of eternal life. It is because Jesus brought eternal life out of a deadly grave. And Paul puts it so beautifully. He says, Jesus abolished death and brought to life an immortality, uh, and brought to life an immortality, light uh, through the gospel. I read once of a little girl who, uh, whose house was just beside a cemetery and to go and buy anything in the market, she had to walk through the cemetery. But she never had any fear, but she was pretty used to the cemetery, and uh, she would even return late in the night from the market, a small little girl. Now, all of a sudden, one passerby stopped her once and asked her, uh, are you not afraid you have to go through the cemetery in the night? She said, no, because my home is just beyond. Are you afraid of the cemetery this morning? No, not if you're a Christian, because you and I know Our home is just beyond. So, so far, we have seen two things from Solomon about how to live in this unjust world. He said that we need to understand two things. First thing, although the world is full of injustice, God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. And then the second thing he said, it was that God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. He would recognize he is no better than animals. Then there's a third and final thing we need to understand, and that is in verse 22. It says that man should enjoy his appointed works as there's no future beyond them apart from God. Man should enjoy his appointed works as as there's no future beyond them apart from God. Now, you see the argument where Solomon is going? Firstly, Solomon talked about a lot of injustice in the world. Follow me, please. Solomon talked about a lot of injustice in the world. And he says, yes, there's injustice, but the fact of the matter is there's one day where God will put everything to rights. And in the meantime, as we live, if you don't have hope of that day of judgment, you will be no better than animals. Because everybody is going to die and there's no afterlife. But if you do have an afterlife, we have hope. And then Solomon asked the question, now in the meanwhile, what do we do? (laughs) 
I think this is going to break today. I'll have to buy a new one. It's gone. Okay. Uh, in, in the meanwhile, Solomon says, what do we do? We live and enjoy life. Isn't that what he says? God has appointed certain works for man, and he must enjoy those appointed works. He must enjoy those appointed works. But the fact of the matter is, Solomon also says this, you will not find meaning in those appointed works without a worldview that has God in the equation. We'll look at that. He's saying that you can rejoice in whatever good work God gives you to do as you wait for the day of judgment. Again, in explaining this, he has two things to say. Let's go one by one. Steve, if you can help me. Uh, First thing, Solomon says, man should be happy in his appointed activities. Look at the first part of verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. As Solomon wrestled about his doubts about afterlife, his first impulse was to throw himself back to work. Now, here's a very simple principle that I want to give. If you're uncertain about your future, the best thing to do right now is to be productive. Oh, this works? Okay. The best thing to do right now is to be productive. But unless we have eternal life, finding joy in our everyday work will never give us lasting satisfaction. So Solomon here encourages man to enjoy the present life that he is living. So the question then comes up, why not enjoy life in sin? Why not enjoy life in sin? While there is some present joy in sin, the fact that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man seems to leave man incapable of enjoying life without him. You get that? So, The point is, if you sin, you really cannot enjoy life. If man realizes that one day he's going to stand before the judgment seat of God, little joy can be found in wickedness. And there would always be the question, what am I going to say when I stand before the judgment seat of God? But what about believers on the other hand? The believer on the other hand can come to the conclusion that while this world is messed up, I will wait for God to put it to rights at the end. God has his own ways of working. God has his own time of working as well. In the meantime, I as a believer will enjoy life with the God-given ability to be victorious over sin. You and I work on our sanctification here. If If you've settled your fear of judgment in the work of Christ, then you're free to enjoy life without the dread of despair. So Solomon says, man should be happy in his appointed activities. And finally he says, there is no future beyond man's appointed activities outside of God. Outside of God, there is no future beyond man's appointed activities. Lastly, second part of verse 22, who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, Solomon is saying, we don't know many details about the afterlife. We don't know many details about the afterlife. However, we as Christians who have been given a fuller revelation in the New Testament, we know a lot of details about afterlife. Paul puts it so beautifully to the church at Thessalonica. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. We know what's going to happen in afterlife. Let me share this illustration and then move on to uh, the last part of it. After the Battle of Inkerman in the Crimean War, there were some soldiers who were trying to bury the dead bodies and take the wounded bodies and take them to hospitals. 
And all of a sudden, as they were clearing up bodies, they came to a tree. It seemed as though this fatally wounded soldier had dragged himself and parked himself under the tree. And he seemed, although he was dead, he seemed as though he was happily sleeping on his arm. He was fatally wounded. He was dead. But as the people who came to clear the bodies, they tried to clear him, they heard the sound of a paper tearing. And they wanted to be careful as to what it is, and they saw it was a Bible. There was blood on his hand, and he had put his hand on one particular leaf of the Bible, and since the blood was congealed, it was stuck to that leaf, and as the body was pulled out, there was a little tear, a part of the paper or part of the leaf was torn and came along with the finger. And they carefully opened the finger, this really happened, they carefully opened the finger to see what verse it was. It said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You know what they did? They buried the soldier with that portion of scripture stuck to his finger because that was his hope. That was his hope. Dying, he was really beginning to live. With his finger upon the promise that Christ was life, he passed from the land of dying to the land of living. From struggle to conquest, from darkness to light, from a lot of war to a place of bliss and peace. There's no future beyond man's appointed activities outside of God. Now we began with a question. Uh, The question was, how should we live in this unjust world? What answer did, do you think Solomon gave to us in all of these three points? He gave to us three points, but the fact of the matter is he does not completely answer the question. It is a kind of an enigmatic passage. But we can come to the conclusion that the way to respond to injustice and death is to balance accountability to, to God with enjoyment of life. It is to balance accountability to God with the enjoyment of life. You can rejoice in whatever good work that God has given you as you wait for the day of judgment. By that he means you must always have in sight that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ but enjoy the work that we are doing today. Enjoy the work that we are doing today. Let me finish with my final illustration. Earlier in the sermon, I talked about Lena, a young Egyptian girl who was persecuted for her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Lena was disowned by her family, what kept her from despair, very specifically, was her faith in life after death with Jesus. And here are her words. She says, I'm in real danger, but I trust God because he's alive. My comfort is that only a short time I'm spending on earth, but there will be a long time I'll spend with him in eternity. We know there will come a time when there'll be no more sorrow or suffering. This is my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a hope as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all the troubles and sorrows, after all the troubles are gone, he will raise us up to glory. He will raise us up to glory. So three points we saw. The first thing, can you help me out? Although... The world is full of injustice. God has appointed a time for all people to be accountable. And then, secondly, God has placed death before man so that he would recognize he is no better than animals. And the response is, man should enjoy his appointed works as there is no future beyond them apart from God. Thank you for your patience. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, we...
are amazed at the profundity of wisdom you gave this man Solomon. As we read your word and as we study your word, and although he wrote it centuries ago, it is as relevant to us as this morning's newspaper. Father, we realize that without you in the world, this life becomes meaningless. It's all a vanity. It's been tested. It's been proven. Help none of us seated here to make that mistake. Help us to be mindful of the fact that one day we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and help us to enjoy our lives and live our lives in light of that fact and help us to work for you, work on our sanctification. But more than that, help us to be mindful of the fact and rejoice in the fact that we have a certain hope and a certain future because we know that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Thank you for the certain hope as we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.